Uh, and that question of who am I, uh, we, we discussed that last weekend. If you want to listen to a recording, I think. And we, we discussed that who I am is a person who is in the world, which we have to recognize. I mean, we're, we, we, we have to have a brain working here. But I'm not of the world and what that means, that the value system and the things of the world are the things that, that I am at at least some sense of learning how to live my life and following Jesus. The second question uh, that we said was that was, why am I here? Why am I here? Uh, there's a lot of research that indicates that people uh, ask this question early in life, early on, and even in midlife. Some have suggested that the asking of this question, why am I really here? Am I here just to go to work and make money and pay taxes and do things and, and make a, you know, a two or three week vacation and then, and then it's all over? Uh, why am I here? Why, <clears throat> what's my purpose in life? Uh, one uh, man said it this way, that he who has a why can withstand any, heard this? How? In other words, how am I going to deal with this? It's because I know why I'm here. He who has a why can withstand any how. And that, that's the notion there, that, that understanding why I'm here, uh, why I'm on this earth, what, what's my purpose. And I want to have us look at that under those two. So, so the two, again, the dialectical questions, the two we have to ask are, why, who am I? That's the first one we did last week. And then, why am I here? <clears throat> so if you'll turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to look here uh, at a, a pretty, uh, pretty common passage. Matthew chapter 5, 9, 15 in my Bibles where Matthew starts, and uh, we'll begin uh, reading here in a moment about uh, a passage that's uh, fairly uh, common. You've heard it, I'm sure, before, uh, but want to kind of unpack it as best we can. The second uh, thing here, or I think I've got this on here. Well, I I, I fooled myself. I I thought I already had that up there. Here we go. The second one is, why am I here? Okay? Let's look here at Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. Now, let me draw your attention to something here that, that might help you get the context. In fact, uh, you know, uh, it, it is always surprising to me, uh, not well, somewhat surprising, that when we study the Bible, that I can spend 40 minutes on two verses. Is that surprising or just aggravating? You know, you know sometimes, I mean, it is. I mean, you, you think, why can't you just read it, Cliff? Well, there's, there's an interesting thing here, I think, that, that we have to understand about the Scriptures even, is that the Scriptures are written at a real time in history. They were written to real people. You know, this wasn't just some generic kind of thing. This, this is also one of the unique characteristics of the Bible. Greek mythologies, other myths are written in some other world under the Hades or under the earth. And, and they're not written to real people and it's always in some mythical setting where the Bible is written to real people at a real time. And it suggests to us that in studying Scripture if we're going to study it carefully, is we not only need to know what the words say, but we need to know what they mean, <clears throat> right? How do we do that? Well, one way is that we have to understand the historical context. What did this mean to these people? What, what did it mean to this group? You know, I, I, I'm uh, fascinated if you go look at this uh, in Ephesians. If you look at Paul's writings about what we call table life or, or the family life, Paul begins with, wives, be subject to your husbands. And everybody said, amen, no, all the guys. <laughs> and then it says, husbands, love your wives. Right? And then it says, children, obey your parents. And fathers, don't exasperate your I want to just show you something here real quick. And again, this is part of this here, I promise. I'll get there. 
This idea of A is submit wives, B is for husbands to love, C is for children to obey, and D is for fathers not to exasperate, if I can spell that. You know what's interesting about this if you look at it historically? There is nothing new Paul is saying about wives submitting to their husbands. Nothing. That's throughout the culture. Did I spell that? Oh, what? Submit. I, t- I cannot spell when I get close to something like this. I'm serious. My students know that. I can't spell. There is, this is old news. In the ancient world, every woman submitted to her husband. That's nothing new. Nothing at all. That was the common practice of the culture. Guess what is new? Husbands, love your wives. That's brand new. There's nowhere else in ancient literature. You can't find it. The idea of loving your wife because she's property doesn't even exist. Then, children, obey your parents. Like you have an option, right? What's that? Old. That's, I mean, my dad used to say to me when I was bad, Kind of, my dad would say to me, you know, if we were living in, Jew, uh, in uh, Israel uh, 2,000 years ago, I could kill you <laughs> for that. Yeah. <laughs> and I say, I know, but we have lawyers now. <clears throat> so I don't know if that's a threat or if it's a wish or what it is. But he said, you know, if you'd, if you'd have done that back in Jesus' day, I, you could have been killed or had your hand chopped off. Thank you, God, we were living in Beaumont, Texas. <laughs> Okay, that's old. It's old. I mean, there's nothing new. But but watch this. Don't exasperate your children. Brand new. You know, if you go this further, what is it? It's uh, 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 owners treat your slaves. um, I'm sorry, uh, slaves uh, submit. Better. I just I can't spell that word. (laughs) Submit to your masters, and then slaves, you know, uh, uh, obey. It's old, new, old, new, old, new, old, new, all the way through. And you know what's funny to me? Because we don't know that. This is all we talk about. Wives submitting to their husbands. That's all we talk about. Our children, you better obey your parents. Listen, there is nothing in the scripture here new about that. At all. How do I know that? Historical context. That's pretty important, isn't it? For us to understand the history, the background. Because when we study the Bible, we need to not only know grammatically what these words mean, and grammatically what they uh, suggest. We also need to know historically where, what does that mean at that time. And it's just been, uh, uh, so that was a little longer introduction than I had on here. Does that make sense to you? I, I, I'm fascinated because we don't know that, that we always talk about women submitting to their, I'm for it, usually, you know. <laughs> Is that right, Beck? <laughs> Is that right? Just checking. But, but this notion of husbands loving their wives, man, that's off the chart. That, that, there's nothing in ancient literature that says this. And so we're, we're constantly to study the history, the background. So, I, you know, sometimes it is laborious, and I know we only got one point done last week, and everybody's sitting there thinking we're only going to get one done today. That's okay. Notice when Jesus starts this, I just want to show you in Matthew 5, verse 1, Jesus saw the crowds... And he went up on the mountain and he sat down and he began to teach. 
Then when you go to the end of this Sermon on the Mount, we're not going to do all of it. In chapter 7, verse 28, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed. Crowds. Because Jesus was teaching as one having authority and not as the scribe. So, so let's just settle this first of all, that it appears to me that the audience or the group that are being dealt with here is the crowd. The disciples are there. The twelve disciples are there. This makes this teaching unbelievably unusual because Jesus is not just speaking to the guys that are following Him. He's speaking to everybody. He's speaking, he's speaking to everybody. So when He says, blessed are the... It's not just my tribe, just not my group. It's whoever you are. You know, we, 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 and I'm, I told Dan a couple guys, you guys better get to church and you better help me do this because this is going to start leaking out of me from the National Prayer Breakfast. But we talked all week about making our circle bigger, including other people in our world. See, Jesus did that. He was talking to the crowd here. Think about that. These statements are available, are, are spoken to just people hanging around. And so Jesus makes some great... So we're going we're to look at that. Uh, this idea of the crowd. In, in my judgment, I've looked at this before. I, I've got a new category. I didn't teach all week. I was off, so I'm uh, busy today, okay? <laughs> there seems to be in the ministry of Jesus... Uh, it, I think there's a fourth group, but I'll just do this. Right here, we're going to call this group the crowd. These are guys just hanging around, just following him. Just, okay, were you having lunch today? I heard, heard you had lunch yesterday. Is there lunch today? Somebody bring some loaves and fishes. And then there's another group here called the curious. The curious. They're the people that are... I'm, 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 I'm a little more interested in this. this. This is making a little more sense to me. You know, I'm, 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 I'm finding that some of the things that he's saying may be true. And then what we might call the inner circle, are the committed. The committed. And Jesus seems to work through all the time these different groups. He doesn't say, well, this is for, you know, just you. He was always expanding the circle. I think there's, I think there's another circle. This week, I came up with another circle. And I really think this is, because I think there was another group that was always around Jesus that were there, and I think this is the critical these are the Pharisees and people trying to, fight, trying to catch him. We're going to catch you saying something wrong. We're going to do something. And, and Jesus seemed to move and operate in all of those circles easily. Not us. <laughs> we have trouble with that. If I'm one of the committed and you're not, then you're a little further out. Instead of what Jesus said. So it's very important for us to see that, that what Jesus is going to say here seems to be available to everyone. Now that's a radical thought when you think about it because you know many of us are in and we think other people are yeah. You got to be part of my tribe, part of my group. You know, cuz my group's the best. So so this idea that that all of this is going out to a general population of people. And Jesus is saying, "Hey, blessed are you. Whether you're in my tribe or this group or wherever you are, if you are poor in spirit, blessed are you." Man, how blessed are you? And, uh, this word, uh, makarios, I've always cracked up. Carl Barty was a great, brilliant theologian. Translates, makarios means blessed or to be, to be honored. He, he, he translates like this, you lucky bums. <laughs> this guy was the greatest theologian of the 20th century. That's why I liked him. 
So, so th- this, this matter of, if you will, of, of who is Jesus speaking to? He's talking to everybody. So, you know, wh- whoever you are in life or wherever I am in life to say, do you have to be in the tribe? Do you have to be in the circle? Or is Jesus talking all the way out to here? Even maybe there. I, I, this is my new circle because I know this is out here. And, and they're following him and he's list- they're listening. So, the interesting thing that Jesus begins uh, this process, if you will, So in verse 13 he says, you, that's plural, should be translated y'all. In fact, when we go to D.C., we meet with some California people and we say, we use the word y'all. And when we're talking of a large group, it's all y'all. And uh, they like us a little bit. Jesus says that this crowd, out here, not here, not here. I mean, this is the crowd. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand that it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Now, it's interesting here that that Jesus is telling us, why am I here? I want to suggest, first of all, to be salt. To be salt. Now, again, in the ancient world, salt was a fairly valuable commodity. Um, It was interesting to me that I learned sometime that that the word salarium uh, in Latin which I don't know too much Latin. I know uh, Latin America, but that's about it. I'm thinking of Dan Quayle right now. Leave me alone. (laughs) Uh, In Latin, salarium, this word that comes from this, that we get the word salt for a Roman soldier meant salary. Now there's some thought, it's not completely accurate, that that, that, uh, uh, Roman legion soldiers uh, were uh, paid in salt. Yeah, that, we're not real sure about that. But we do know that the word salt or salarium, or this word comes from the Latin, is the word for salary. In other words, you, you, may, you, may, you may be familiar with this phrase, which it seems to come out of. That guy's not worth his salt in him. You ever heard that? He's not worth his salt? That's the idea of, of, of value, of, of salary. Uh, that Roman soldiers weren't actually paid in this, but they were obliged to pay for their own food. And so their cost for their salt was if you will, deduct it out of their pay, and they would carry it with them and use it as a, a, you, know, a, if you, a you know, to flavor food or, or some of those kind of things. You're the salt of the earth. Uh, salt was mined in uh, uh, different parts of the world. There were big trade routes because it was very valuable and uh, was used throughout the world. And Jesus is using a commodity or, a, or, a, or an image or a thing that, that the people of that day would certainly understand. <laughs> You're the salt of the earth. And these people, again, are the crowd. They're, they're marginalized. They're not part of the in crowd. They're not part of the tribe in downtown Jerusalem. And they're going, we're what? You're, you're here to be salt. You're the salt of the earth. The currency. The, the, the matter of, of, of this crowd that you're not the well-educated. You're not the well-financed. You're not the powerful people of Jerusalem. But you're the salt of the earth. It makes a difference. 
Well, I, I want to think about that for a minute. Because in, in their culture, what does that mean? We have some evidence, obviously, that, that salt um, it, it, it enhanced taste. I you know, did a little research on there. Some people say when they get on a salt-free diet, the food tastes better than that. I, I'm not willing to take the risk. And, yeah, I'm just not. That, that, that period in between when you're off salt and not, I'm not willing to. They said the same thing about sugar, and I said, nope, not willing to take the risk. So that's why I'm this way. Uh, but we know that in the ancient world that, that, that salt uh, w- would often enhance taste for food. And it was highly valued. The reason it was uh, it, so valuable, because it, according to what the research I did, was it said that salt enhances the positive sensors and attributes of food, and then when it hits your tongue, makes it better. You know, you ever had, uh, here's an example. Uh, uh, you ever had uh, Brussels sprouts? Yeah, what do you do with those? Salt them to death, <laughs> right? <laughs> then you can do that. The reason I like ketchup, lots of sugar in it, right? Had liver and onions one time, and I just floated them, you know? <laughs> I thought I actually had ketchup. Uh, so so it, it enhances the, the taste buds or the natural better matters of it. And, and when, what, what is here is maybe one of these ideas that Jesus is, is spinning out is saying, you know, you're, you're the salt of the earth. You're, you're enhancing the flavor of life. They're, they're, they're the idea here that, that you're a kind of a person that whenever you are and wherever you are, you in, enhance life. That's a possibility, I think, because Jesus knows the, the use and the function of it. What is often not the case, though, is that sometimes people have followed Jesus. You know, when they leave the room, the room lights up. <laughs> right? You know, it's, it's, it's like that. I mean, you just think, man, oh, man. I mean, I've seen, and I'm not, you know, it, my dad used to say, they may, they're not bad people. You know, they're happy. Their face just hadn't found out about it yet. And uh, one of these days it will. And... Uh, and that, but, but the idea of being the salt of the earth is saying, am I the kind of person that, that enhances and, and makes the world a better place? That, that because of my presence, because of my life, because of what I'm doing, that life's more fun. I, I think about uh, uh, Christian artists. You know, there's a real movement nowadays uh, outside sometimes of the church of people that are saying that as Christians... We've not done a very good job. We've kind of gotten sullen and, you know, we just talk about the Bible. There's nothing wrong with that. We just talk about the Bible and, and, and we don't really uh, have this creative impulse anymore. I mean, I'm the least creative person in this room. There's no question about that. You could ask Becky. I'm not creative. I, I don't have creative ideas. Uh, I, I'm just kind of a, I just put my head down and go through life. But, but if you think about it, a lot of the impulses in the history of the world were by Christians. Sculpting, art, science. You know, all, all of these guys were, and gals, sorry. Many of them were followers of Jesus. And in the Renaissance, or before that, the, the creative impulse that began to occur. Now, I love art. I, some of it, you know. I like it when it has the numbers where I can, you know, do that. I saw a painting of that. I thought, man. I mean, really, I thought with my inability to do any of that, that's incredible. Catherine. Here in our class does artwork. And you know, I'm amazed by that kind of stuff. The creativity. Again, this idea of adding flavor. Life. I just want to ask you, in your life or in your circles and where you are, would people say that you and I are adding flavor? That, that because of our presence, creativity, beauty, flavor, uh, uh, you know, all of these kind of matters that have historically been what 
caused followers of Jesus to go forward? Is that present in our lives? I, I thought about this a story I, I'll tell you real quick. And we'll move on. Uh, you know, when I was in Houston, uh, or the, I'm sorry, the school I teach at used to be in Houston a long time ago, hundreds of years ago. It was a, it was 1953. <clears throat> and, and I remember it was, a, you know, it was called Gulf Coast Bible College. Some of the girls called it Gulf Coast Bridal College, but uh, yeah, we when those girls said that, we're in the other direction. Uh, and I met Becky there, which I'm very happy for, and she's wondering about. But I remember um, going to school there, and it was right after the '60s and the '70s when I was there, and the permissiveness of all of that time, uh, you know, was was still part of our culture. And I remember the school trying, if they would, to to you know. Um, Make sure these kids don't get out of line, which they couldn't stop anyway. But uh, I remember going to school there, and after a while, the, the kind of nerdiness, if you will, of they had a policy there that they didn't want you to have what they called public displays of affection. Called it PDA, and, that, and this, this is getting worse, right? <clears throat> public displays of affection. And I remember thinking how weird this was and how, you know, that sometimes, you know, if you're holding your girlfriend's hand, or you're walking to chapel, you got your arm around, they say, that's enough. Well, first of all, these are guys at the school that I'm sure I didn't kiss their wife in 40 years. <laughs> really, I'm serious. I mean, I look at them and go, yeah, nobody wants you. Right? They're out. Really. It's not that they're holy. They're just boring. It's not holiness anywhere. It's nothing godly here at all. But, but I thought about that. I thought about how it was so oppressive. It, there wasn't anything natural about it. That young kids, you know, and guys when they're dating girls, you're in chapel, you know. It was like somehow you'd done something terrible, you know. And, and I remember, and I guess the reason I'm saying that is because of this idea of to enhance taste. I remember the bad taste it left in my mouth. And the bad taste that it left in other people, where people thought what they were doing, they were being holy. They were holy something. You know? I mean, it, it, it was so disruptive to people. And I thought, do people think this is good? I mean, I tell you, I've told you about I think, you know, I teach the Bible every semester a couple times and I'm asking myself, am I adding flavor? Here's my great fear. I used to tell guys in my department, we'd get together, kind of huddle up, you know, before the first game, the first day, okay, guys, here we go. Here's our deal. I said, okay, here's our deal. We want to make sure that this year we don't teach the Bible or theology or anything like that to kids in such a way that at the end of the semester they hate what we love. Right? Yeah. Are we being a flavor of enhancement wherever we are. How about your home, your neighborhood, your family, your job? People love seeing you coming or do they head the other way? Are, are they, are they going to have someone who comes in and enhances creativity, life, beauty, all those kind of things? Is, is that, is that what, what it's going to be? I, I think it's incredibly important. Second thing. Salt does when Jesus says you're the salt of the earth is this it's a preservative. Now, without refrigeration in the ancient world, you know that uh, they preserved uh, uh, meat and food like that with salt. 
In fact, the Egyptians are the first ones we have any record of. of I, don't know what, I don't know what they were doing. I, I just read this and I thought, okay, I'll just, I, don't, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. But they would salt birds and then preserve them like that and eat them. I thought, what kind of birds? You know, <laughs> Mockingbird, uh, you know. I don't know, but, but birds, and, and they, they were the first to do this thousands of years ago and would sell these to the Phoenicians and other people for food. And so the idea of learning to use salt to preserve. When, when my dad moved our family to Kentucky my senior year in high school, I said, where are we going? He said, we're going to Kentucky. I said, right. Okay, be sure. I said, I'm not going there, you know. It's a four million people and six last names. And, you know, <laughs> sorry if you're from Kentucky, okay? Sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm just telling you. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> yeah. When, when we got there, they introduced me to something called country ham. And I said, what is that? And I thought all ham was from the country or the supermarket. And this is a ham that they take and they rub it with salt and all this kind of stuff and hang it in a barn. You know, we hung a rake in ours. <laughs> you know, a big old ham. And, and you would come out and then they would cut. And those guys thought that was like candy. It didn't taste like that to me. <laughs> but, but the idea, I mean, it, you could have a country ham. And, you know, when I first saw one, I said, I'm not eating that. It's been, I, we've been at this meeting. It's been out there for an hour and a half. I am not touching that thing, right? It's this idea of, if you will, of, of being a preservative. This is an incredibly important role for our world. Is or are our lives affecting the culture in a preservative way? Now listen to me carefully. I'm not talking about making everybody agree with what we agree with. I'm not talking about getting everybody to vote the way we vote. I'm not talking about everybody's got to get in my tribe and in my circle. I'm talking about where our lives have a preserving effect on our world, on our culture. Is there anything we're involved in that is helping to preserve the world? Now, you know, my, my kids, they're, they're not my kids, they're children, or they're young people. Leave them alone. Here we go. Um, you know, they want to say this. They're distressed at the way that many Christians look at the environment. You know, it's just throw stuff away, tear it up. I, 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 it's a complicated thing. But they're, they're concerned about that. The, the preserving of the environment, the preserving. How about just the preserving of just common character and concern for people? I mean, we think, I think we think at times, or maybe I think, maybe I should just throw me in the bus. I think that we think that the only way that we preserve the culture is if we get everybody saved. I'm for that. I'd like, everybody to, I'd like for everybody to be a follower of Jesus. But I don't think that's our only matter here. I think we can be a, a force for good and for people, for the marginalized, for the poor, for others who don't have a voice to be that. And I've told you about this person. Here's, a, here's an example of this. For me. Can you see that? I told Dan and them, they better get back or I'm going to tell all our stories. This is a, a restaurant in, uh, 
in San Francisco. This, the, the, these, these are all, this is, they're not standing up on chairs or something. This is Teresa Goins, a little blonde-headed gal in the middle. This is Teresa, I've told you a little bit about her. Teresa uh, is a probation officer, which cracks me up. She's about Becky's size, and I thought, a probation officer, why, kindergartners? You know, you're a kindergarten cop? Mm-mm. I mean, serious offenders, felonies. She lives in San Francisco. She's a follower of Jesus. She would go to work every day and cry herself home with these kids. What's happening to them? And as a consequence, she began to say, she, you know, please understand me here, okay? She's a follower of Jesus, but she didn't think, how can I get these kids saved? That was not her thought. See, it's like we're swinging for the fence every time. Maybe they will. And we'll tell you about a girl named Tammy that will blow your mind. In fact, Tammy's up in the top right there. Here, don't, don't tell Dan or Mike when you say it, go, wow, like we don't know, okay? <laughs> this girl's off the street. She's now running the restaurant because Teresa worked with her, mentored her. This is a real, real restaurant in San Francisco. It has a five-star rating on Yelp for you over 50. Don't worry about that. Uh, <laughs> five-star rating on Yelp. Your kids or grandkids will tell you later. It's a fully run restaurant by these kids who are offenders. And they're running it and making a profit and learning how to manage money and learning how to, to show up to work on time, learning how to uh, do a day's job. Learning, here, this is fascinating. Uh, Teresa, or, uh, uh, Tammy taught me something I'll tell you later. How to confront problems. This isn't... Disneyland here. This, this isn't. They've had to let kids go. They've had to say, you can't work here anymore. And, and how they've done it. We'll, we'll tell you the story how they've done that. Now, let me tell you something. For those kids, for those young people right there, she is bringing some salt to that situation that that neighborhood, that area is no longer rotting like it was. There's another picture. If you want to go to oldschoolcafe.oldschool.com in San Francisco, You'll see her receiving an award from, uh, I can't remember his first name, Mueller, uh, Mueller, who was the head of the FBI. This old Tammy girl, we, Gary Shaw and I were laughing. This old Tammy girl right here, she, she's, she's 22 years old. You can't believe the, 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 the chaos she came out of. She's being trained. She can balance a checkbook now. She knows how to handle money. She knows how to go to work. She knows how to handle conflict. She knows how to work through her problems. She knows how to do it. Listen, that's being salt, guys. She, I, you know, she happens to be a follower of Jesus. But some of these aren't. But does that mean we quit being salt? Teach people how to live? So we were laughing. Uh, Teresa told us, she goes, uh, you know, the other day, we're at this place, and they've talked to the mayor of San Francisco, and there's some rundown apartments right across the street. This is right down from Candlestick Park. This isn't in a good area. It's a tough area. She said, there's some... Housing projects are available. Nobody's living in them. Give them to us. We'll fix them up and we'll do that. So Teresa took Tammy downtown just the other day and did a very American thing. Took out a mortgage and got in debt. We all started singing the Spark Bangle Banner. Da, da, da. Anyway. 
Think about this. This young girl who is living on the street because somebody said, I want to I, I do something. Let's be salt here to stop the rot of our culture. I'm not talking about protesting. and I'm talking about getting involved to where now, here's a person. This is what Teresa said. It's, it's hilarious. Teresa said, this is a person off the street, has a job, paying taxes, fixing to buy a house. How about that? That's a little girl right there, Teresa Goins. That's an example. We're going to tell you some more about this. A preservative. An actual, if you will, effect on society. Maybe we don't go to all of our neighbors and share. It's okay, the four spiritual laws, which I think there are more laws than that. But, you know, maybe maybe we we mentor a young person or maybe we uh, start a, a Cub Scout trooper. Maybe we uh, uh, talk to people about how to balance a checkbook or how to set up a budget. Or maybe we decide, hey, you know what? Here's a good thing. Let's, let's eradicate the water problem. Dick and Terry are in here. Water for others. But let's eradicate the water problem. Would that be a good thing for culture? You bet. That's being salt. Now, again, please don't misunderstand me. Where we get in trouble, I think, is we're swinging for the fence every time we try to be salt. we got to get them saved now. we got to get them to meet Jesus. Why don't we just be salt in our culture first and see what happens? I think we've got to get over the anxiety about it. God is going to be glorified. And we'll see this here in just a second. He's going to be glorified when we're salt and what? Light. Yeah. I want to do that. I, you know, I would love for people to ask you and ask me first. I think evangelism is much more effective when the audience is asking the question and not me telling them what they need. If they said, why are you doing this? I got a friend who says this, he just cracks me up. Well, the guy I follow told me to. Well, who's the guy you follow? Jesus. Really? You're one of those? Right? So we're breaking that barrier down first. That you're, you're one of those people? Because I, I thought y'all hated all gay people. I thought y'all were all Republicans. Uh-oh, now I'm starting to meddle here. I thought you all carried a big Bible. I thought you, you... That's the data that's coming out. Do you know that? That's the data that's coming out of Barna and every other research project in the world. That's who people think we are. We hate gays. We're all Republicans. We all are conservative. We all live in the suburbs. And we don't care about the inner city or the environment. That's just, that's what they, we've got to find ways to be salt. Now, I think I got another thing. Real real quick here. We'll talk about that. To ratify a covenant. Salt was also used to ratify. In fact, in Leviticus, you can go back and read this. Uh, Every time... uh, 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 there's a statute forever in Numbers 18, 19, where that every time a covenant was ratified or a covenant act with God was always used salt. It said you would be salted with a covenant. In Arabic, in the ancient world, in Arabic, there's a statement or an Arabic expression. There is salt between us. There is salt between us. What does that mean? We're in covenant. We're in a relationship with one another. And so it always means salt a participating of hospitality and cementing the relationship. Cementing the relationship. Salt was always used like that. In fact, there's some stories you read, 
where uh, Jews and Arabs and, and others all around the world, that they would carry a little salt with them, I guess, you know, to salt their food up, or I don't know, you know, whatever they're doing with it. And, and, and when they would get into a covenant or an agreement, they'd say, we're going to get into a covenant, we're going to be covenant brothers. One would take some salt out of his bag and put it in the other guy's bag. The other guy would take the salt and put it in his bag. You could never distinguish the two. Now they're mixed in together. There's salt between us. Now let me ask you this. When Jesus is using this, it's a preservative, yes. It's for flavor, yes. But but ratifying a covenant or the idea of the enduring nature of our relationships with God and with others. I I ask uh, uh, permission for this. As followers of Jesus, are we the kind of people known for our relationships? I know people that, that... even though it's follow Jesus, wherever they go, it's just like a body count. People are just worn out by Him. What about the, the covenant of relationship where we're the kind of people, known to be the kind of people, that we stick with friendships? One said that the greatest example of a friendship is when everybody else leaves, the friend comes in. You know Dr. Ken Smith, and I asked for Ken's permission. I probably would have done it without it, but I you know, didn't. <laughs> Ken and I have been friends for quite some time. And it hasn't always been easy for me. That's what I'm going to say. He would tell you the other way. For him to. I don't know about you, but if you have enduring friendships, you know they're the greatest gift that you have. Friendship is... is it? I, I've told most of my friends this. My goal in life is to have ten people that go to my funeral and never look at their watch. Those are my friends. I have four of those right now. I'm taking applications... Yeah, the enduring nature of friendship. So Ken and I, over the years, you know, we, we've had our ups and downs, and, and it's been me and it's been him, and it, it, it's been tough. But I, I remember one time, we were going through one of those times when I would call Ken and talk to him, and Ken was going through a tough time, and Ken didn't want to talk to me. And I knew it. I could feel over the phone, I know him well enough. He, he, he was going through some things and a lot of questions. About God and other things. And, and, but I would call him. I would call him. I would call him. And it was not comfortable for me. It wasn't fun for me. It was just, Cliff, keep calling. And a, f- a friend of mine asked me one day, why do you keep calling him? Why do you keep calling him? And I said, because he's my friend. He's my friend. Are we known for those kind of friendships? That we're in a covenant. And people say, I can count on you. You're a friend. I'm not talking about the unusual kind of definition. You're a friend. This covenant of being involved, if you will, with others. Are we known for that? Are we known for the people that have these enduring relationships? Are we known for... Here's the question. And they make a lot of fun of this at Washington. And it's funny and it's sad at the same time. But these congressmen and senators will tell you this. You know, we don't vote alike and we don't agree. But on Thursday morning, we get together and we, for an hour, read the Bible, pray, and share our lives. And even though we don't agree, we do that every week. I I thought there and I thought, you know, it's easy to love people that are like you. It's easy to stay committed to people who are staying committed to you. 
It's easy to be in relationship with people when they're doing what you want. It's whenever things get tough and rough and things are questioning and people are wondering and people aren't returning your phone calls, you say, what kind of friend am I? I think that's the kind of salt that these people knew about. It was the salt of covenant. That's the kind of friend I want to be. That's the kind of friends I have. I, I, you know, Becky and I have never had kids. God had mercy on her soul, and I have to raise two kids. And I've said to her, you know, Beck, the most important thing in our life are our friendships. And I'm not as good at it as I need to be. I'm not as good as I want to be. I'm trying to learn. Now, Jesus says this. Boy, we did one verse. See, I told you, remember? History, context, forget it. You know me or you don't. But if the salt loses its taste, how can it be salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown and trampled underfoot. By the way, I want to ask you something. A lot of times we're salt, but we're in the salt shaker. And we need to get out of the salt shaker. You can be all kinds of salt here in church. And I can be salt, and you can be salt. It's easy to be salt here, isn't it? It's wonderful because we're all around salt and even some salty people. But it's harder in the world. And Jesus said, you're the salt. This is why you're here. You're the salt of the earth to add flavor, to preserve, and to be in covenant. Jesus makes an interesting statement here in this, and I think I've got it right here. i read here. When he said, and you can read that for a moment. When Jesus says it's the salt loses, let me tell you something real quick. It is impossible for sodium chloride to lose its saltiness. Can't be done. If you're a chemist or something, you know that. What is Jesus saying here? Because people read it and say, well, that, that's not true. It can't be happening. But the salt that they gather in the, in the ancient world isn't out of mines deep. It's out of marshes. It's out of little areas of water where the salt is sort of gathered up. And the only way that salt can lose its saltiness is through contamination. Contamination. It doesn't lose its saltiness. It just gets with brine or it gets with, with a dirt or mud or other stuff. Like and, it, and, it, and, and, and they just use it to pave roads. Now, now the question is this. I, I, I just want you to go back to this. You've had time. I, I just want you to go back to this. I, I, I think that sometimes the reason we've lost our saltiness is we just stay in the salt shaker. We don't get out. We, we don't get into the world and say, this is who Jesus called me to be. And so we stay in the salt shaker. So even if we have saltiness, if we don't get out of the salt shaker, it ain't going to make any difference anyway. Or what about contamination? I'm not talking about, remember we said we're in the world but not of the world. Contamination is when we begin to buy into the values of the dominant culture. And I'm just talking about sexuality. I'm not just talking about the... I'm talking about money. I'm talking about big is always better. Money's what you want to run after. I'm talking about these, all these values that keep climbing after us. That's how we get contaminated. And so we don't see the world anymore the way Jesus does. So again, here's the challenge. How are we getting out of the salt shaker? How are you getting out? Are you in there? Are you out? I kind of think of church as the salt shaker. That's fun. I love being here. But how about out in that world? How about out there with people to add flavor, to preserve, to be in covenant? How am I adding flavor to life? 
or being a preservative? Those are big questions. And only you can answer them. And only I can answer them. And only we can find and ask God, God, how will you help me to live this out in my world where I am in this crowd. You don't have to be all in here. I'm in the crowd. But I am, and you are, the salt of the earth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need your help more than we can imagine in terms of helping us to know who we are and why we're here. So help us this day, this week, in the coming days, to find out, discover, experience, experiment even, with how we might be the salt of the earth in any of these dimensions, flavor, preservative, or covenant. We, we trust you that you will guide us because it's not enough to hear this and do nothing about it. It'll never make any difference until we act. So help us in Jesus' strong name to do so. For it's his name I pray. Amen.